Are you listening? Damn. And welcome back once again to the Endurance Hour Podcast, episode 363, alongside Kona coach Wendy Mater. I'm Dave Erickson. Glad to have you with us this week. Lots of questions from our listeners and followers and other uh, triathletes around the globe. We're going to kick off with a question about Ironman races and how to choose one that would probably be your PR race, possibly. Who knows? Uh, Adam, looking for advice on choosing my first Ironman distance. Prefer a lake swim and a gently rolling bike course rather than a huge hilly one. Isn't everyone looking for something along those lines? He didn't say a flat run course, but everyone's looking for something that's doable, at least manageable for their first Ironman. What's your advice there, coach? Yeah, I think, you know, when it comes to your first one, most people want it to be kind of flat and calm in the water and ocean swims tend to be could potentially be rough water lake swims maybe river swims could be downstream so there's a lot of a lot of things to look at when you're choosing your first iron man and i actually wrote a blog about it quite a few years ago that we should link to the show notes about what to think about when you're choosing your first iron man um number one you know is it a destination are you looking to travel and make it a big family event or, or a vacation event? And you want to either, you know, if you live in the United States, maybe you want to travel to Europe. If, if you live in Europe, maybe you want to travel to the United States. So you want to make sure what's, you know, part of that is being a destination race. For me and my experience with coaching athletes, if you're choosing your first Ironman, I recommend it being more local and not not have a destination as your first one because then there's just a whole mess of logistical things that you are going to stress out about. I coach an athlete right now and he's leaving for Spain today, Thursday, and his first Ironman is, I think it's Saturday, maybe Sunday in Spain. Hmm. And and we're realizing that maybe that was not the best choice for your first one because of all the travel and the bike box and just things he's never experienced before. So that's something to consider. Number two, I think should be number one, is when you are considering your first Ironman, when, what time of year is best for you to put in the, the bulk of your training? So about 12 to 16 weeks out, you're going to be putting in the most volume. You, about eight to 12 weeks out, you're putting in the most volume. So if you're someone who has kids and they're home for the summer, they're not in school and you're busy with kids, you might not want to pick a June, July or August Ironman because you, you, you won't have time. Or you might not want to pick a, a August Ironman because you might not be able to train a lot in May, June and July leading up to that August Ironman because you have family commitments. Having said that, if you have kids that are generally in school between August through May, that might be a good time for you to be able to train a lot more because your kids are in school. So maybe you want to pick a late winter, early spring Ironman. Again, just, you know, it's what's more realistic from a training standpoint. When do you have the opportunity to, to train more? And then the third thing is, you know, picking an Ironman that suits your strengths. If your strengths, like me, are swimming, I'm always up for that rough water, ocean swim just because it is a strength of mine. And then also I don't like Ironmans that have a lot of hilly terrain. I like climbing. I just don't like descending. So on those courses where like a Lake Placid course where they have a lot of elevation gain, I'm fine with the gain. It's just, it's just the descents that I tend to lose time. And so those aren't my favorite uh, places to 
you know, compete on. And I'm a competitor. I'm more than a finisher. I'm trying to compete. Ultimately, though, at Lake Lake Place, it is a great destination. And I've done it twice. And I'll probably do it again, despite mm-hmm. not necessarily liking the descents. So again, picking your strengths, picking a time of year that you can train a lot and um, knowing if it's a destination or not. We've got tons of videos on the Endurance Hour YouTube channel and one that I did eight years ago. It's got 30,000 views. Top six Ironman races for first timers. That's something you might want to look into. I will probably add a link to that in the show notes on iTunes and also on the blog on endurancehour.com. So that would be a good place. For that, we also, you know, number one tip for first-time Ironman triathletes: our Couch to Ironman 32-week training program uh, made easy. So there's a lot of great resources on the YouTube channel for that. I just typed in first-time Ironman because I knew what what video that was. I just forgot exactly the the, the wording of it. But uh-huh. if you type in first-time Ironman on our YouTube channel Endurance Hour, you'll find it. Which kind of ties into one of the questions we had already on the on the program: is a, uh, you know, do you have any exercise videos I can use for core strengthening? And yeah, you can find those there as well. Oh, tons of exercises of Dave demonstrating um, a lot of a lot of core strength as well as just general strength. Um, that's more than just your core on the endurance hour. I share his videos with everyone, so it's a great channel. I just also want to mention, um, you know, once you're picking your Ironman and you answer those first three or four questions I talked about, going to the World Triathlon Corporation Ironman.com website. They describe the nature of the course. So, you know, once you just know what time of year, once you kind of know what destination you're looking for, then you can go and look at the course profiles and it'll say on the main page of the event page, whether it's a flat rolling or hilly course. Mm -hmm. And so that kind of makes it easy. But you want to you want to know the core questions first. Yeah. Also, it will tell you the average temperature of the water, for example, that kind of thing, too. Yeah, whether it's a downstream or not, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. just a lot of good information on the Ironman website. Another one to consider with uh, when you're looking at your first Ironman is you, you mentioned this with the time of year with your, your life, your family. I have one in, in November, so the tail end of my training, it could be super cold and, and not so much fun to go outside. So I'm, I have to keep in, mind, keep in mind, I may be doing some of my bike training indoors if it's too rainy, cold, or, or possibly icy. Uh, for toward the parts of November. So think about that when you're planning when you're going to be training for your race. Yes. And if you do live in the United States, I recommend not doing an early spring race, April and May, because even if you live in the South, the weather in the winter, you know, January, February, March could be sketchy. And mm-hmm. the fact that you might not get to train a lot outdoors. Yeah. And if you're new to the sport, you might not have the ability to train indoors either. You might not have the equipment or the facility to train indoors. And part of the, I think it, you know, the fun of training for an Ironman is, is getting outside and getting on your bike and getting on new courses and not always being inside. And I just found whether I lived in Colorado or lived in Georgia, those April, May events are not for me anymore. Because yeah. I like to train in the heat. I like to train in the summer. So I prefer fall Ironmans if I'm training for one. Here's a great question for uh, Wendy. It was in the T2 Endurance group on Facebook. It's a closed group. I just got to answer a couple of questions and uh, request to join like 700 members in that group. This was, how often do you swim with paddles and pool buoy? Coach, uh, these are accessory tools to help you get stronger, to help with body position. But 
Is it something that someone should rely on on a regular basis? How often should you add these to your workout routines? So me personally, as a, as an age group swimmer, you know, kindergarten through college, equipment was actually very rare. I don't remember using a lot of equipment at all, except the kickboard. We did a lot of kicking sets, but we didn't use fins. I don't remember. If, I don't even think we used paddles. Maybe we used the pool buoy, which is something you put between your legs and you just use your arms. And as a post-collegiate swimmer, you know, triathlete for 30 years, being a swimmer, I actually, mo- I'm motivated to go to the pool and use my paddles and fins. So I always use paddle and fins, but that's just for me. Mm-hmm. When I'm approaching the race specificity, if I'm getting ready for an important triathlon, I will not swim with tools like fins and paddles about eight weeks leading up to the race because I want to get my body used to the certain speed, a certain pace without the the aid of the equipment. Generally speaking though, I always recommend athletes that I coach as well as the training plans we created that if you do have access to um, paddles, use those in the strength building phase of your training plan, which is usually like typically the end of the base training early into the build phase, race specificity phase of your training to, to maximize your strength in the water. So that's that. And then fins, I think I don't kick when I swim. So when I do have fins on it, I like to kick mm-hmm. and I like to do a lot of dolphin kick and it helps loosen up my quads and hamstrings and hips that get so tight from biking and running. So that's, you know, the way I use fins. This question from Karen, what is your best recommendations or advice when it comes to aerobar hydration systems and hydration on the bike in general? This is, she is training for Ironman Arizona. So I'll see you there, Karen. Um, again, another good question, full disclosure. I've tried the Aerobar hydration system once in 30 years and I didn't like it. Um, I didn't like having that and, and they probably have advanced them and made a lot of different hydration systems, but I didn't like the straw in front of my face. Mm-hmm. And I didn't like the fact that, um, I would have to stop and pour a water bottle in it and refill it. And so I'm very old school. I carry two water bottles with me, um, on the, the down tubes of my bike, one in front, one in, you know, between my legs. And, and I'm fine with that because I know how to, you know, go through an aid station, toss a bottle, grab a bottle. And that's just really simple for me and efficient for me. I've also used once in my life, a hydration system in the back of my saddle. Mm -hmm. Again, I didn't like it. I wasn't experienced reaching back, getting a bottle and putting it back behind me. So I just felt that it was a little bit more, you know, stressful in a way. And it was not my preferred method. So I'm not the experienced, you know, more than that with hydration systems. How about you? I've had the one in your aero bars before. Uh, there was a little bit of issue with, um, it splashing about, they do have a, some sort of overlapping, uh, plastic or some sort of mesh that can be there to keep the water from splashing out when you're going, but it's just one more thing to worry about. Let's say you hit a bump and that thing jiggles around. Or if you want to get really aero and lean forward, you could be bumping into that. Depends on how you position yourself on the bike. Uh, I, I haven't used it for many, many years, but I did have it in the beginning. It's going to be limited to just your hydration in terms of water, not a mix that you have because it's kind of hard to continue 
topping that off and keep the mixture the same. So let's say if you make your hydration, your nutrition, you know, a different type of mix of powder or gels with your water. I don't like that. I wouldn't like that in my arrow position. Uh, but I do have them, like you, you say, one bottle is always my water slash nutrition where I put gels in combination of water as a designated bottle. And the other one is a throwaway bottle or just water. I have had the ones behind the seat, the saddle. But like you said, if you're not comfortable, I mean, the, the idea of having those water bottles behind you is that you stay arrow and you can just lean back with your arm instead of sitting up and grab it. But there's some coordination involved. There's some dexterity involved with having to lean back there. Plus, I've seen people, and you have too, who have four bottles on their bike. I don't think you need four bottles. It's just extra weight, especially right. if you're going on a hilly course. Two at the max, one minimum, and that could be if, if it's going to be just simply hydration, or for me, I'm going to have one minimum nutrition slash nutrition, nutrition slash hydration, and a secondary bottle that I'm gonna, I can toss. But two bottles max. You don't need the extra weight. Uh, that's why aid stations are available. And, and always, and I, I remember seeing someone do this. I just put a water bottle down my front of my kit if I need an extra one on board. Yeah. I've done that with the running too. I did this in the last mm-hmm. race. I just put my water. It was a, um, a liquid IV bottle. So a small bottle with liquid IV powder in it, just an extra hydration, you know, flavor. And I just yeah. put it in the front of my jersey for the first half of the run. And then I just, A-station water, soda, Gatorade, and I just get some water and just top it off just to have something when I'm ready. If I'm in between A stations for hydration, same thing with um, the bike. You got 10 miles between A stations generally for a half or full. Put one in your jersey and hang on to it if you need to. It's not really in the way. It's not going to throw you off aerodynamically because you're probably leaned over anyway. So you're not throwing off aerodynamics. If you need that extra bottle, great. So you got your two bottles and one in your jersey. That's the most. And then when you're ready to do a a trash drop, get rid of it and restock up. Exactly. Those are my thoughts. Exactly. Now, something I just remembered I did just recently in November of 2021 for Ironman Florida, I put a water bottle cage between mm. my arrow bars and yes. I put a bottle in it. People do that too. That That's was, great. That was actually fantastic. So, yes. you know, th- that was fantastic. Zip ties to hold that yeah. together. No, that, that's a smart way too. If you want to have it right there with you and you don't want to move too far, mm-hmm. you know, reach down to your cages. That's a good spot. I've seen people do that and that's smart. And get the, the biggest bottle, longest bottles possible so you can get the most hydration in your bottle. But yeah, that's a good one. I almost forgot about the water bottle cage in your Yeah, because that's a recent thing for me and that actually works out great. And it, you know, hopefully it doesn't, it doesn't get in the way of your computer that you have up there that's checking your power, your speed, and that kind of stuff. Just it, You'll figure it out. <laughs> you'll figure it out. Right. All right, next one here. Uh can anyone give me an idea on how many bike and run miles per month I should be shooting for two months prior to my first or to a, to a full Ironman? Uh, here's some context to this question. Their goal is 12 to 13 hour time frame for a finish. Uh, I will have a better idea on my time after completing a 70.3 this month. You may or may not. Uh, this one has a quick answer that I think you'll say, but I'm sure you'll expand is it all depends. It does all depend. And this is, I saw this in another group. I can't remember the name of the group on Facebook that I saw this in, but it was just a, a, probably a very common question. So it all depends on this athlete. I know nothing about this athlete. I don't know his previous, his or hers. I can't remember previous experience, but what you do the final eight weeks really just depends on what you did the previous eight to 16 to 20 to 24 weeks. And so there's not an easy answer at all. And 
you know, trying to finish in 12 to 13 hours has nothing to do with how many miles, you know, how many miles is not a pre, a certain number of miles is not a prerequisite to being able to finish in 12 to 13 hours. But I understand what he's trying to say. So mm-hmm. I did answer the question in the, in the Facebook group. I don't know if anyone commented on it yet. I haven't even followed up with it yet, but you know, I, I think this athlete, you know, it would benefit from a, a coaching consultation to, you know, explain and, and help someone else, a coach, understand what he has been doing. Yeah. And then that coach could, I could, if some, if it was someone like me, I could look at what he's been doing from duration, from frequency, duration, and intensity standpoint to better guide what he should do for the last eight weeks. Because randomly posting this question in a group with hundreds of other athletes and probably other triathlon coaches like myself, he's going to get so many different answers. And so I was kind of surprised that someone would post this in a random group yet. I know it's been done before. Yeah. And that's just, that's probably just one of those rookie things. Like they're just searching. <clears throat> I, I need help. How many miles should I be running? Well, you're, you probably need some coaching. You probably, there's gotta be some individual individualized yeah. uh, attention to what you're doing to understand what you're capable of doing, mm-hmm. um, where you are in your fitness journey in triathlon. And you're right, the, the 12 to 13 hour mark is, that's not even part of it. It's, but it's, there's going to have to go back up quite a few steps before we even think about a finish time. If you're wondering how many miles on the bike and run you should be putting in two months right. prior to your full. If you don't know right. by now, if you're not on a plan two months before your full, um, I think uh, you need to talk to someone ASAP. Yeah, exactly. And they do have a they do have a, pl- a plan for seventy point three. That's going to give them an idea and probably a reality check of uh oh, <laughs> I just ran a, a three hour half marathon. Um, maybe I'm not going to be making my cutoff times or you know m- making my goal time of twelve or thirteen hours. Right. Yeah. And that's why it's so important to you know you're you're right. Everyone has an opinion, and some of those opinions are not to be rude, but uneducated as a coach, I mean, you, everyone, you can personalize your own plan for you and, and make it up for yourself and be a a somewhat good self-coached athlete if you know yourself, but for someone else not to know you, who's not a coach to give you advice, you're just throwing things in the wind going, good luck. Right. I think it's going to create more stress and anxiety than it needs to. Now I want to follow up on this. I just started coaching an athlete a month ago, a young athlete in his mid twenties, And, you know, he fills out this athlete profile and one of the questions was your goal and his goal was 12 hours. And I'm like, I think that's a pretty common goal for a first time Ironman athlete. And when I talked to him on the phone, I'm like, where did you come up with 12 hours? And he goes, he just goes, it just sounded good. (laughs) And then I explained to him the nature of the course he's doing and the nature of being a first timer. And he totally is like, I get it. That's cool. Let's let's shoot for 14 to 15 hours. And it was just really, it's just really important to be realistic with yourself and honest with yourself, what you're capable of doing. And cause I think it keeps it, the process and the training more enjoyable. If you know you're realistic and you, you set an attainable goal for yourself, especially for the first one. That's what I love about goal setting in general is that you start and then you reassess, you readjust constantly and then you test again. All right, now I need to, you know, adjust my goals. I don't know what I have until I try. So if he throws out 12 hours and he's humble and open and self-aware enough going, okay, maybe I was wrong. <laughs> now uh-huh. that I realize that requires a, you know, so many hours in the bike, so many hours in the run, so many hours in the swim. Okay. I'm probably not there or there yet. I'm okay there. 
Now yeah. my realistic time based on those, if I'm fit, if I'm uninjured, if I have no mechanicals, if nutrition goes right, then I can be at 13 and a half hours. Yeah, exactly. And again, he just had no idea. Mm-hmm. You know, he's really, I mean, that's, that's it's an easy, it's an easy conversation to have because he just had no idea. Yeah. That's good if he's, he's you know, not too arrogant to think that oh, I can do it anyway. Yeah. Um, any training tips for an average aid grouper on improving speed on the bike? I'm sure you have lots of tips on improving speed on the bike. Yeah. I mean, this is a really good question. Again, an average age grouper, what's an average age grouper? Is it, a, is it, you know, is this person a beginner? Um, I think first of all, when you want to improve speed in any sport, you have to first know where you're at. So you have to have that baseline, you know, let's say, um, speed on the bike. Let's say you're training for, uh, an Olympic distance triathlon. You want to know generally what is your current 40 K bike time, or you want to know what, like do a 10 mile time trial, you know, cut it in half and do about a 10 mile time trial. What is your current pace? And then you want to be able to set up some training zones. Training zones help you guide intensity of your workout. So you are capable of, of mixing up your training where you're doing recovery rides, easy rides, you're doing endurance rides, and you're doing interval rides, and you're doing strength and power workouts. And all that will, you know, within like a weekly, within a weekly plan will help get you faster if you're not just always going and specifically to cycling, just going and riding the same mm-hmm. effort or the same distance every time you go out or with the same group ride. You want to make sure you're varying the intensity specific to you. So again, knowing that baseline, setting some zones, and the zones don't have to be power, heart rate, or pace based. They can be, if you understand your rate of perceived effort, you can set up your zones that way as well. You just want to be conscious of creating a progressive training plan where you're building on frequency, duration, and intensity, and you have that that goal time frame. So again, that SMART goal, specific, measurable, attainable, realistic, and time bound. That's important to have that as well. But yeah. I think I think that the, the easy answer to, to getting faster is you do have to train faster. And this can be translate. This can be carried over <coughs> to the run as well. I mean, you're saying all the different things, all the same things that you would apply to getting, you know, improving your speed on the run or increasing your average pace on the run. Same things. Yeah, and 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 it's not just about always riding faster. It's about having those easy days too. The easy days are just as important as the hard days because you want to be able to recover so you can mm-hmm. go hard, and you just you just have to be very specific about what that means to you because a lot of athletes, especially beginners will train in what's called the gray zone where it's kind of hard, but not too hard, but it's not too easy either. Mm -hmm. And if they're always training in that kind of hard, not too easy zone, well then they're never fully reaching their potential of really, really going hard and really, really going easy. Another way of saying it is that you have to get outside your comfort zone. You don't improve Mm -hmm. when you're comfortable. You improve when you're uncomfortable and you, you get uncomfortable. Yeah. Yep. And strength precedes speed. So make sure you're putting in some time in the, the weight room or riding a lot of hills. Mm-hmm. This one is probably something everyone's going to experience at some point. This is from Cindy. Is it normal to feel sluggish at the tapering weeks? 
I'm having the feeling to be even more fatigued and feeling the workouts more difficult. I don't know how many weeks out she's talking, but um, your thoughts on that one, tapering. Yeah, yeah, uh, definitely it's not unusual to feel a little sluggish um, at some point during your taper. So let's take let's take a, an Ironman, for example. If, if I'm coaching an athlete, I'm gonna give them about a three-week taper. And what that means is it's a planned um, decrease in volume over the course of 21 days. And so usually after that first week is when they start to feel a little bit sluggish because your training load's going down. Um, I'm even going to decrease the intensity of that first week taper. And then I'm going to bump the intensity up while I continue to decrease the duration of what they're doing. So it is kind of normal because your body, you know, your hormone, your hormones are going to change. Your nutrition is going to be maybe still a little out of control as you're decreasing that volume. You may be still overeating a little bit. So that's going to maybe feel, make you feel a little bit sluggish, a little bit fatigued. So is it normal? It's no, it's not a guarantee that you're going to have this feeling as you taper, but it's definitely not unusual to feel that way. So don't, don't panic if you feel that way and don't panic if you feel amazing during your taper. That's okay too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I remember feeling this, this last uh, week or so ago leading up to, to a half of, uh, I had all this extra time on my hands. I was like, what am I doing? And I, and I was aware that, uh, I wasn't, I was still eating on a regular basis, but I, I was aware that, okay, I'm not burning as much as I'm eating. I wonder what that's going to do on race day, you know, weight wise. And for me, fortunately, my weight was pretty steady both, you know, before, during and after the race. It was a normal experience, uh, but I did recognize like, oh, I haven't worked out today or I haven't worked out more than an hour today, yet I'm eating the same or my, my appetite's very similar, Right. but... I'm not burning it. I wonder how that's going to be. But fortunately, the the lead up was pretty steady, and I'm not doing too, going too crazy on what I eat. Yeah, and I think it's important to continue a high intake of nutrition during the taper because your body's still repairing, and it's good for recovery. And your metabolism is still super high from all the training you did leading up to the taper, and. It's okay to put on, in my mind, a couple pounds the week, you know, you're a couple pounds heavier the week before your race because to me that just means your glycogen stores are high, you're hydrated, and you're going into the race um, fully loaded yeah. with with energy to, you know, let off. Yeah, and draw race from. day. We got time for one more question on this episode, and this is going to be from Blake. What are your thoughts on a 20-minute FTP test versus a ramp FTP test to accurately calculate FTP? would love to hear what your experience is on that. Um, yeah, great question. So for those who aren't familiar, um, the standard functional, functional threshold power is a 20-minute test. And about 95% of your average power during that 20-minute test is going to be your functional threshold power. That's pretty common. Um, I think it's Andy Coggin and Joe Friel are the, I don't know who made that, that test, who created that, but that's a pretty standard test to do. And then there's also this ramp test that I first heard about from Trainer Road where it's about a 15-minute test where you increase your watts, I think about six watts every minute hmm. until 
you you fail. And so you're going to get to this point where the last minute you just can't you just can't turn the pedals anymore. And whatever your power average power was for that last minute, you take 75% of that and that's considered your functional threshold power. Hmm. Your functional threshold power is what you theoretically can sustain for an hour at at threshold maximal effort. Again, you're not you're you're going at threshold effort if you're riding for an hour. So my first advice is for me, I like to actually just go out and ride an hour at my best effort that I can sustain for an hour to calculate my functional threshold power. I prefer that protocol over a ramp test or 20 minute test. I've done them all. And then more importantly, I like to use my, my average power from a sprint distance or an Olympic distance triathlon to set my functional threshold power Mm. because it's in a race setting and I'm, I'm pushing harder. You know, you just always push harder when you're in a race setting than you do in training. Um, now, also, most people these days will do these ramp tests indoors as well as a 20-minute threshold test indoors. And so I know there's, um, I think it's, it's probably Andy Coggin who, or, or Hunter Kemper also talks about the difference between a functional threshold power test indoors as well as outdoors. I don't have that data in my mind, but it's something that athletes can look up. So to answer your question, what was, what was the actual question? Well, your thoughts on the two different to accurately calculate oh, the FTP. Yeah. I mean, again, based on my experience, when I coach athletes, especially new ones, I'll have them do both types of tests in the first month for comparison's sake. Mm-hmm. For me, what's worked best, if I had to choose one or the other, I'm going to do the 20-minute test protocol, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it indoors unless I go out on a flat course. I'll also do it on a flat course. And, you know, I think I, I know as an athlete, based on my experience, I know if it's going to, if it's kind of accurate or not based on how I feel, you know, you want to go into these test protocols in a fairly rested state. And I know sometimes I am not in a rested state. So I know the results are going to be a little bit different because I, I may have went into a more fatigue state than I should have. So, um, I think they're good to set some baseline and, and it's, it's baseline that you can redo a test every, you know, six, eight, 12 weeks and compare. And hopefully your, the numbers have gone up. Having said that, if you're, if you're training for an Ironman or half Ironman, you're not necessarily training to increase your functional threshold power. So if you are a triathlete and not just a cyclist and you're training, if you really want your functional, if you really want to increase your functional threshold power, you should put it, be put on a training plan to be able to increase your functional threshold power because just training for triathlon isn't necessarily going to do that unless you're a beginner. Usually beginners can only get better as yeah. they train. Yeah. But if you're a very experienced athlete such as myself or you, Dave, your, your threshold might not change that much in any given season unless you're specifically training to increase it. A lot of good variety of questions on this episode. Thank you so much for putting those in and and keep them coming, whether it's the T2 Endurance Group on Facebook, social media, across all different channels. Check it, you know, leave comments below on the YouTube channel because I read those on a regular basis. I get alerts when I get comments, which can be overwhelming, but still uh, there's some, good, some golden nuggets there sometimes. So keep them coming. That will wrap up episode 363. So a good half hour here. Hope that uh, passes the time while you're training or um, just driving along. So 
for Wendy Mater. I'm Dave Erickson. Thanks so much for listening this week. Have a great week of training, racing, or recovery. See you next time. Adios. Adios. Mm-hmm.